Imagine bold, naturally-aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger, eating thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Ah, it's nice to dream about cheese for a bit. Tillamook cheddar, extraordinary dairy. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1976. It's America's 200th birthday and what a cesspool. The movie? Taxi Driver. everybody welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is a show where we are watching in a random order every movie on the afi top 100 list last week we watched the sixth sense and it caused quite a stir online yeah you know kate littleton who runs our facebook page the best ever ever oh by the way Happy birthday, Kate. Happy birthday, Kate. Kate had her birthday this week. Kate alerted us that on the Facebook page where every week they do a vote, should this movie be in the top 100 of all time? And usually the vote is just like who gets the most percentage of yeses. Right. This week, for The Sixth Sense, the answer was no. Yeah, and I found a lot of people on Twitter doing this kind of odd defense of the film going like, no, 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 I like it. It's a good movie. It just doesn't belong on the list, which – leads me to question, well, what's the criteria for belonging on the list? It's a hundred films. And I'm questioning it myself. I'm like, well, if I'm entertained, does it belong on the list? Or should I be looking at it differently? I mean, to you, Amy, when you're looking at this and we're talking about these movies, what's the criteria that you're using? Yeah, it's like this parabolic equation where you throw in stuff like historicity. Now I'm just going to make this <laughs> most I love all these words. But yeah, you're like, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Does it add up to a cake? Do I have all the ingredients? And I've been noticing this pattern, which is that all of the newest films we've covered on this list, you know, that would be Sixth Sense, that would be Shawshank, that would be Titanic. These have been our most controversial entries. Mm -hmm. And there's a clear pattern. The newer the film is, the more we're like, I don't know. And maybe that's because the newer the film is, that historicity is harder to factor in. And everything old has an importance that we may just give it because of its age. You know, I respect your elders. Exactly. I don't think that this list should be viewed as like the periodic table of elements. It's, it's not an immovable list. I think this should be a living, breathing list that updates and, you know, and engages people. Because I think one of the things that I felt when I saw this list originally was like some of the movies felt like homework. And if the list is constantly evolving, it's not saying forget about films, but there's only a hundred slots. Well, now you've got me like 
thinking about your metaphor and how we do make new elements for the periodic table, but all the new ones we make are like unstable and dangerous, which would be the dark nights. And people mm. being like, put this movie in. AFI actually got involved and they said, look, the way that we judge the criteria is, is it f- a feature length? Well, yes, of course. Uh, is it an American film? It's AFI. Makes sense. Critical recognition. Does it get formal commendations in print, TV, and digital? Sure. Major award winners. Recognition from competitive events, including awards from peer groups and critics and guilds. Does it have popularity over time? Now, this is, I think, probably the biggest issue. Historical significance. Now, I think this is a place where you can argue that Titanic does have historical significance as a leader in, you know, new technology. But when you look at Sixth Sense and Shawshank, it's a little different. You know, um, is it doing anything differently or is it just an entertaining film? And also, I think there's the problem with these directors still being alive. I mean, Mm -hmm. the thing is. A lot of the directors who made some of the films on this list, the older films, we only know their hits. Right. And so we're like, they were great. Everything they did was great. Shyamalan is alive now, and we are very familiar with his flops. We're like, eh, he's okay. Right. Maybe at the time when they were doing the math, they'd be like, he had some hits, he had some misses. Um, By the way, did your heart skip a beat when AFI tweeted at us? Oh, of course. I mean, I loved it. I loved every minute (laughs) of it. It was great. So I think we covered a lot of the the talking points on Twitter, but I want to give a shout out to all the great uh, photoshops that have been going on. You guys, we gave you a little call to action, like to Photoshop uh, my face and Amy's face onto movie posters, and people have just come through so big. And uh, I want to say thank you to all the people who, when they were creating photoshops for Taxi Driver, they made you Jodie Foster. I thank appreciated you. that as well. <laughs> uh, by the way, just one quick thing, a call to action to y'all. Uh, if you're liking the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It does help in the grand scheme of what we're trying to do here uh so uh and and let your friends uh, know about the show we've been having so much fun doing it all right so this week's listener question for taxi driver is this what does travis bickle's taxi smell like and i'm kind of scared to hear what people think hey this is tom from new york and i can tell you for a fact travis bickle's cab smells like bourbon and angst uh yeah travis bickle's taxi definitely smells like marijuana that's been smoked like a week ago and then Fritos. Armpits and weed. Smells like sweat, cigarettes, duct tape, and sadness. Spilled low main. Rotten Chinese food smell. Vomit, urine. Based on Travis Bickle's description of his cab, I think it smells like blood, cum, and because it's the 70s, cigarettes. I think Travis Bickle's cab smells like Martin Scorsese's beard. Hey, this is Will Harris, and I think Travis Bickle's cab smells like a combination of peach brandy and peanut butter with a hint of sadness. You know what? Those were actually pretty great. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like they did uh, like a Raymond Chandler-esque writing assignment there. It really kind of captured everything that I thought it would smell like. Uh, now I'm just going to get into a taxi and go immediately. Amy. Let's get into it. Number 52 on the AFI Top 100 list. It's Taxi Driver. Came out in 1976. Directed by Martin Scorsese. Starring Robert De Niro, Sybil Shepard, Peter Boyle, Harvey Keitel, Albert Brooks. I'm glad that you ranked Peter Boyle so high, though. Peter Boyle, Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein. He's very happy for you. Uh, you know, The Wizard. Come on, you can't, you can't put The Wizard down low. Um, written by Paul Schrader. And a lot of the interviews, uh, Martin Scorsese gives most of the credit to Paul Schrader's script. Um, how would you describe Taxi Driver? Uh, you have a young man, 26, 
26? About that, yeah, sure. Yeah. You have a young man in his 20s in Manhattan, hating Manhattan, still living in Manhattan for some reason, (laughs) hating it, spending all his time looking at Manhattan and how much he hates it as a taxi driver, who slowly starts to decide to act on his violent urges. I thought I saw a taxi driver. I remember watching it, but I don't remember a single thing from it. When I watched this movie, it was completely and totally new to me. I don't know how I missed it or just got erased from my mind. I think when I was in high school, I would put in DVDs and watch them so late at night that I would just go to sleep and they would just be gone. And you'd have the best dreams ever. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially after this. (laughs) Yeah, especially after this. And this movie, and I know we've seen so many great films, this was the first time I felt like, oh, shit. It was working on a lot of levels. It felt to me like the definition of indie film in a way that it just it grabbed me and it felt like um, a college thesis where it's like we have a lot to say and we're going to put it all in here and we're going to pack it to the gills and you can take it apart and you can look at it from all these different angles. It just felt like what I understand 70s cinema to be, very deep, very symbolic, uh, very gritty, very real. It it resonated with me in a major, major way. Whoa. Yeah. I'm staring at you right now. Yeah. I'm staring at you sort of in awe, <laughs> in a touch of fear. Uh-oh, I know where this is going. I mean, what what I hear when I hear the passion in your voice is I picture my cat when I give him a catnip toy okay. in his glee. And he's like, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing. And so we're going to have an interesting conversation because I want to understand that joy. I don't get anything out of catnip, really. Right. I don't dislike it. It's great, sure. catnip. Well, cool. you shouldn't have it for you because yeah. catnip is not for yeah. humans. Yeah. Yeah. This movie has this hold that you're describing on so many people. Well, <laughs> It's good. I'm not at the beginning. Yes. This is not a bad movie. This is not a trash movie. I don't want to do the thing where you're like, oh, it's just mean to women, so fuck it. Or, oh, it's just mean to all people, so fuck it. Because it's talking about what it's like to be mean to people. But then also – teetering into the fact that it is also probably a little too mean itself. Well, I think what I was really impressed by in this film was I don't think I've seen a movie that captured a first-person perspective like this. I felt like I was in the mind of this person. I know we've talked a lot about voiceover and the importance of voiceover and when it's good and when it's bad. And in this, I felt like the voiceover did another thing as well. It not only got you into his mind, his deeper mind, but it also showed you how he was uh, revealing himself to others. And maybe it is the fact of what we're going through now as a culture that I thought that this character kind of resonates so much. Um, He's not a likable character. He's a racist. He has no social skills. And he is someone who wants validation and acclaim and celebrity or the want to be acknowledged for doing something great. And I feel like these people surround us in many ways. And to see a somewhat sympathetic portrait of that. I'm not saying that I felt like I agree with what he did at all, but to take a journey with that character, I felt like I was in very rare air. That's kind of the thing that I think I was so captivated by, like really being on this journey with this person. Well, you're describing him almost the way, too, that like he describes the streets. Like he's repelled by New York and by the filth of New York, and yet he can't stop just driving by the same porno theaters and going in. He's not driving by like the Met, you know? Right. He's not driving by the park. Yeah. And you're morbidly fascinated with him. You, like, want to see where he goes because I guess we all have this little bit of us of, like, this self-flagellation, like, I hate this, I hate this, give me more of it, you know? Right. 
the feeling of, you know, being on Twitter at three in the morning. Like, I hate you. Well, it's like also the idea of like feeling so stuck in what you are given your lot in life. And I think when you open up the movie, here's De Niro's character saying like, I need to get out. I need to make a difference. You know, I believe that that's my goal. And then he switches and it's like, I am destined to do something great. And then it's, I'm predetermined to live this life. And even though he believes that he's predetermined to be a cab driver and to kind of be miserable, he is making his own destiny by attempt, attempting an assassination. Well, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the quest to be exceptional. You know, I, that if you can't be exceptional on one set of terms, you're going to create your own set of terms. I, I think about this a lot. Like, I have a couple troubled people on Facebook who uh, – some of them I don't even follow, but I check up on them constantly because right. of stuff like this. Like, one of them is a guy who's married to a distant relative, uh-huh. and he's deeply, deeply troubled. And, like, just this week he went on, like, a huge rant that was talking about the filth and the scum of the earth. And it was this long thing with, like, quasi-biblical language in it and, like – you know, as Ephesian says, we must rinse this world and, oh, the traitors and the backstabbers and whatever. And to me, I read it and I was like, he is having a breakdown. Right. And a woman, an older woman commented underneath it, like, wow, this is really great writing. And he was like, thanks, I felt touched, like a hand made me write it. And I was like, oh, he's on that path. Yeah, yeah, Like he switched from winning in a normal world to creating his own rules where he is now anointed. And I read that and I was like, Terrified, And I was so mad at this lady for egging him on. But for me, I felt like because of Facebook, because of this world that we live in where you can strike out and you can kind of look down on everyone, because that's what he's doing. I mean, and I think there's many film analysis that can show you like, you know, he's looking at the world through his windshield of his cab and it's, you know, a skewed version of the people that he's seeing, you know. That's what we are. We're looking at people through our screen. It's not our cab window. It's through our screen window. And we're making assumptions about them. And we're saying, I like you. I don't like you. And so much so that when he sees Sybil Shepherd, purely on looks, he's like, you're different. But it's not because of anything she said or done. It's like, I, I, I see you and I'm going to be there for you, which I think is a very true to a social media Mentality. Yeah, he right? calls her an angel. She's just an yes. all white. She's supposed to save him. Yes. And what we see when we cut inside the office when she's just hanging out with her coworkers is no, she's smart. She's tough. She's not there to save people. She's like busting Albert Brooks's balls left and right, challenging him, making sure that he's like cool enough to even talk to her. She's like a smart, tough cookie who's in control and not at all this like passive angel he imagines. And yeah. the movie tells us right away that's who she is. Because we know he's wrong. He's just projecting on her. Which is why I like this movie again, because you're able to follow this character and you're seeing his point of view, but you're also seeing the real world. And I like that juxtaposition throughout. So I wanted to play this clip for you um, about Sybil Shepherd and her character. Take a listen. When you first read it, what did you think? I threw it across the room and tried to hit the garbage can because I had no lines. But then, didn't we not go to the St. Regis Hotel improvise? Is that how we found the lines? Yes, that's right. So isn't it interesting, in the original script, she had no lines, which makes me think, what was this movie before? Because when you talk to Jodie Foster, and we'll get into her in a little bit, she also is the product of you know, Scorsese and Schrader meeting this young prostitute and, and they're kind of culling stuff from her. I wonder if at one point Taxi Driver was only the POV of 
De Niro's character because how could that character not have lines? Yeah, well, there's this thing going on in Taxi Driver that, like, I'm just wrestling with a lot, you know, for good and bad. I mean, when Sybil Shepard read the original script, this is what it actually said about her character, okay. about Betsy. It said Betsy. About 25, an extremely attractive woman sitting at the reception desk between two phones and several stacks of papers. Her attractions, however, are more than skin deep. Beneath that covergirl facial, there is a keen, though highly specialized sensibility. Her eyes scan every man who passes her desk as her mind computes his desirability. Political, intellectual, sexual, emotional, material. Simple pose and status do not impress her. She seeks out the extraordinary qualities in men. She is, in other words, star fucker of the highest order. Whoa. And Here's what I have to fucking say about that. Yeah. Is like, this is Schrader putting in his words who she is, describing her in a way that we're not supposed to see. That's not through uh, De Niro's point of view, through his own point of view. And a woman who wants a guy with like good politics, a brain who's sexy and emotional is a star fucker. And you're like, what? You know, there's a little bit of misogyny in the way they describe her that contributed to the way she was treated on set. She was treated like dog crap on set. You know, yeah, she was well, treated awfully. Everybody thought she was dumb and couldn't do it. You know, Schrader said publicly, we always said we were looking for a Sybil Shepherd type. I mean, how much worse can she be than a Sybil Shepherd type? But she always was a Sybil Shepherd type. That is pretty harsh. And I would argue she's very good in the movie. I mean, did you think her performance was good? I think it's fantastic. She does all these little things I love. Like in her first interaction with Albert Brooks that we see inside the office, she's always cutting off his sentences. She's always like talking right over him right at the end. She, to me, that seems like a woman who's like impatient, maybe a little rude. Right. To men, I can imagine that sounds like castrating. She's almost too powerful. And she plays it kind of perfectly. I like her. I can see why people don't. You know, it's like a mirror image sort of performance. Well, you can see different people getting different things out of it. Well, I have to say that you need a character to be like that to be taken by Robert De Niro's character. It's much more interesting to me that she's a powerful woman or a woman who is very smart, who is taken in by this guy instead of like the mousy, uh, you know, maybe secretary that you describe there to a certain degree, at least visually, you know, it's like, and I, cause I feel like then that person's looking for validation. I don't think that Sybil Shepard is looking for a man to come in there and go, you're beautiful. You're smart. But- oh, not at all. What she's looking for, I think is a challenge. Yeah. And he challenges her when he comes in and asks her for a date. She never really takes him seriously. She's always appraising. She won't say yes to the date right away. But you see Albert Brooks behind him, like hiding and yeah. cowering and popping in and out from behind a pedestal. I feel like she says yes because this guy has some sort of strange balls and she doesn't think she likes them necessarily, but she'll see where it goes. If he's willing to wait for her until 4 p.m., I don't think she's thinking she's ever going to marry this guy, but I think she's a woman who's almost doing it like a dare. Well, I think, you know, there's something magnetic about the energy that Travis Bickle is giving off, right? And I think it works in both directions. You know, it's it's sort of, it can repulse you and it can pull you in. And I feel like that scene between the two of them in the diner, I just kind of love because I feel like she's not cutting him off there. She's listening to him and he's really kind of analyzing her and looking at her. And I think that we all have an ego that, you know, we want someone to tell us who we are a little bit. You know, we want, well, what do you think I am? You know, yeah. and, and I and I feel like that's what kind of brought her in and even, you know, she was smart enough. She knew it was a, a, a porn film or she knew. But I think she was also challenging herself. How far will she go until she's like, I, I'm out. I, I'm out. 
Well, yeah, and in that diner scene, like, a couple interesting things are happening. One, just as a tiny weird throwaway, he gets his pie with a slice of melted cheese, to which I have this giant question, where on earth is Travis Bickle from? Because he's clearly not from New York. Like, that's not, a, that's like a Midwest thing, right? Cheese I believe it is, pie. yeah, but I think that that is so ubiquitous that it kind of overtakes everything, because I feel people order that all the time, but Do they? I've never had it. I tried it once around the corner here yeah. at, um, at Mel's. Just as a, as a thing of, like, people really eat this? Okay, I've always read about it in books. I don't get it. You don't really taste either one. Maybe Mel's just does it badly. What he does in that conversation over the pie is he's bragging to himself about how he can afford to buy her coffee and her mm-hmm. fruit salad. Right. You know, he's patting himself on the back. He's saying, I have a right to talk to you. That gives me the right. Like, all relationships are transactional. He's describing a human conversation in a way where you realize he doesn't see it through a normal lens. He's trying to drive a wedge between her and Albert Brooks. You know, he's trying to divide and conquer. It's abusive. The way he speaks to her is like telling her that her one colleague, who clearly does respect her a lot, does not respect her. He's trying to isolate her. He's someone who has no knowledge of her life except through a window where he's been spying on her. You know, and I would argue, and we could talk about this later too, the idea that is this movie, when we're seeing him interact with people, his version of the events, or is it the way it actually happened? Because... I believe it's sort of like him looking at her and going, this is what I would say to her if I was at a dinner, you know, because you could make an argument that the entire thing is, you know, a cracked out, you know, no doze kind of fever dream of seeing where he would go and what he would do. And, you know, maybe he never even went inside that office, but he's imagined all of this. I, you know, well, I think the movie lets us see how other people think he's ridiculous enough. Right. Too. What I my favorite part of that diner scene with Sybil Shepherd is he's trying to make that really, really dumb, elaborate joke about Organizagazaga. Oh, yeah. And so once she realizes what the hell he's talking about, she tries to match him. She says, Oh yeah, like the poster that says think that's hard to say. Yeah, I know, yeah. And instead of realizing, oh, she's having the conversation with me now, he changes the subject. He doesn't let her have a joke that he will join. Yeah, it's almost as if he pre-wrote the conversation. And he's not going to improvise off of that. He is just going with what he thinks he needs to say and hear. And which underscores men who treat women like a plug-and-play object. Which is interesting because I think you can draw similarities that behind the camera there might have been some misogynistic tendencies. But on camera, I think they're revealing the ridiculousness of being a misogynist, if that makes sense. It's true. Like, I guess there is an argument where it's fine if the people who make the movie are a little misogynist, if they're using their superpower insight into misogyny to put it forth and expose it, I guess. Yeah. Like a, like a penance. You know, Scorsese describes this film as being a feminist film. You know, he said because it takes macho to its logical conclusion. The better man is the man who can kill you. The movie shows that that kind of thinking, it shows that kind of problems that some men have bouncing back and forth between their perception of women as goddesses and whores, end quote. Well, I think you can make fun of masculinity without arguing that it bumps up women because it definitely doesn't do that. I, I, I agree that with that. Masculinity has a problem. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on that 100%. I mean, I don't know how much I want to trust what any of the guys who made this film say about the film because... Right. For example, there's a story how, you know, we have Jodie Foster, the teen prostitute character, 12 and a half in the film, 12 and a half in real life, when she shoots the film, had to go through a four-hour psych evaluation to make sure she was okay to do it and had her older sister double in for her at different parts. But Paul Schrader has said that he based that girl on an actual teen prostitute. Mm -hmm. And he makes it sound 
almost like it was science, like they found one, and then he just interviewed her. But then there's another story where he's like, oh, I found one, but I just, uh, I like brought her home with me because I was nervous about her. And I told her, no sex, no sex, I'll pay you. And then in the morning, he sends for Scorsese and they eat breakfast together, which is when he gets the note about like, oh, look, she puts sugar on her toast. I'm going to remember that. But then there's another story that he also tells a little bit closer to when this happened, where he's like, okay, yeah, I was at this bar. I was really drunk. I picked up this woman, and when I took her back, I realized she was underage. Dot, dot, dot. Then I left a note underneath Scorsese's door, and you're like, oh, okay. I mean, who knows? You know, it's kind of funny about that is you have Travis Bickle painting himself as the guy who can save this underage prostitute. And then sometimes Schrader will be like, yeah, that's what I was doing. Totally. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, sure. To both of them. I want to play uh, the last time that Sybil Shepard really, really talks to him, which is mm. when she's storming out of the movie theater where he's taken her to see a porno. Why do you think he takes her to see a porno, by the way? I think he takes her to a porno because of something that you said earlier. He is not driving by the Met. He's driving by porno theaters. He's driving by this area. He is connected to this area. And I feel like in his mind, there isn't anything else. Even his interaction with the clerk at the porn theater in the beginning, you know, he's buying popcorn, which is oh, disgusting at a, what are you eating popcorn during yeah, a porn and, and chuckles. Piece? Yeah. And who does that? Is that a thing people used to do? I guess back in the late seventies, you know, you're going to make it a, a movie night. Um, but I feel like he has built himself a cage and he is living in that cage in his mind. I don't think he's like, I'm bringing her there to like turn her on. I think he's like, Let's go see a movie. That that's a movie, and that's why I go see. Like, I think he's so out of yeah. touch with what women are like. He might actually think it would turn her on. Do you know what I mean? Because right. he, like, this that's is also bring- a movie where like we have that one taxi driver where we have what is is it is it wizard is it wizard yeah it's Peter yeah. Boyle where wizard is like yeah I had this chick in the back seat and she was a customer and she was changing her tights and so I like just got back there and showed her my dick and she was like yeah and then she paid me two hundred bucks right. and it's. Clearly fake, you right, know? right, right. But nobody else really shrugs off or tells him it's fake. Travis Bickle could be the type of person who might be like, "Yeah, I'll take her to a porn movie. It'll get her hot and bothered. Then we'll go back to her house. She'll play the record that I go. Oh, I just conveniently don't have a record right. player, baby." I think he doesn't know how women work at all, and I think in the back of his mind, he thinks it could work. Where are you going? I leave now. Why? I don't know. I came in here. I don't like these movies. Well, I mean, I, you know, I didn't know that you'd, you'd feel that way about this movie. I don't know much about movies, but if I... You feel the kind of movies you go to? Well, yeah, I mean, I come and they are, this is not so bad. Taking you to a place own. like this is about as exciting to me as saying, let's fuck. Um, there are other places I can take you. Only other than movies I can take you to. I don't know much about them, but I can take you to other places. Which is different. Wait a second, wait a second. I have to go. No, I gotta go now. Wait, wait a second. I want to talk to you. Look, don't just wait. Wait a second. Taxi? Can I talk to you at least? I mean, will you at least talk to me? I didn't know you. Look, won't you take the record? I've already got it. But please, please, I bought it for you, Betsy. It's now got two. Let's go. Can I call you? Now, there's a couple things I want to talk about about that scene. Like, one, I think maybe... The frightening power of Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. what makes it such like a vital film we're seeing and talking about, is I feel like half the people who watch this movie can be like, she's kind of being a bitch. She's trying to make up for it. Mm-hmm. And I see that scene and I'm like, oh, fuck. Like he's trying to negotiate, lower the terms, making it all about her, 
her feeling feeling guilty. Like, why can't you just get, let me talk for you for yeah. a couple of minutes? It's all I want is just talking. Right. And what they do in the sound that I like a lot is that shushing sound. They make it so loud, the sound of him grabbing her sweater. Right, yeah. Because to me, that's the point beyond all measure where Sybil Shepard should, has every right to never speak to him again. Is the way he keeps grabbing her sweater. Yeah. And they make that sound so loud so that you can't miss it. But I think people might. Well, I think this is the problem with art that doesn't tell you what to think, right? If you're in your seat, you could be watching this and going, I am 100% on the side of Travis Bickle. She's a bitch. And then there's another side where you're like, oh my God, I'm seeing this date from hell. And whoa, like that made me feel like I got to see an insight of what women have to go through and not knowing you're kind of putting your toe in the water. Here's a stranger I'm going out on a date with. I also think this is what is going on in the Me Too movement to a certain degree. You hear these stories and people want to quantify these stories. Well, that's not as bad as. Well, because we're all looking at ourselves and we're saying, well, I may have done that. And so then I as bad as this other person. And I think that there's an interesting juxtaposition there. I, I don't know if I'm making my point 100%, but I feel like- Well, there's a knee-jerk defensiveness, you know, exactly. which, I, which I kind of get. In a radically different example, I was telling my friend how whenever I get ed- notes from an editor, mm-hmm. for the first 15 minutes, I'm like, screw that. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, no, they're right. But yeah. it's that thing like, oh, that shouldn't be wrong. That shouldn't be wrong because I do that because that's easier than being like, oh, I do do that. I should not do that. And I love art that does this to us. I love art that's right on this line. I think that's where it's chewy and vital. And I like art that makes me feel gross. Like this, yeah. like Taxi Driver 100% does. I just always worry too, you know, talking about that date earlier, when he tries to get a date with the girl at the movie theater, when he's buying the jujubes that he should not be touching with whatever he's doing with his hands. You know, he goes up to this woman who's behind the counter selling tickets to an endless stream of dudes going into a porno, yeah. right? He tries to pick her up, but this girl has to deal with dudes hitting on him every day. And Travis Bickle doesn't have the mindset to know that. He doesn't have the empathy to know that she will not talk to any dude who picks her up there. 100%. He's trying to have a normal interaction with her, not realizing he has selected a person who, because of her job, is never going to have a normal interaction with him. And when she escalates it back and says, I'm getting the manager, he reacts like she's the bitch because he is incapable of understanding her position. And I wonder how many people watch that scene, too, and they're like, what a bitch. And I'm like, no, wait, hold on. Right. I felt like, you know, as a man, I'm watching this movie and I'm seeing a different point of view. I'm like, oh, that's a creeper. And I, I think I could even go to Martin Scorsese's character, who we see when we first meet Sybil Shepherd. She's walking down the street like an angel in this white dress, and this man's head turns. And of course, we know him because it's Martin Scorsese, and he's ogling her. And, you know, it's like, oh, like she's not even taking that in, but she's surrounded by all these men who are like, oof. And it makes you feel like there are many Travis Bickles out there and there are many versions of them. This one is married. and But he's still on the street, you know, lusting after Sybil Shepherd. And I think there's something really fascinating about seeing the levels of these creeps and these inner creeps. And he's confiding to this cab driver. You know, he's just as racist as Travis. He's just as violent. Maybe he doesn't ever pull the trigger. We don't know. But I think that that's an interesting thing well, to see these people. as much of a phony. You know, he's like, right. you ever see what a 44 Magnum would do to a woman's pussy? You should see it. No way has he ever seen it. Absolutely you know, it's not. the way that boys talk when they're trying to impress each other. Well, like going back to Peter Boyle, this woman, you know, sucked my dick and she paid me $200. Yeah, maybe if, like, dudes quit making up stories about how women behave, everybody could chill out. <laughs> well, Penthouse Forum would be out of business. Um, here's what I'll say in a more of a, a macro point of view. 
I think this movie is about seeing how far we all take, right? We all want to go to the edge. Like, what if I did this? And what if I did that? And I think Sybil Shepard is complicit in going into that theater. She's a smart person. She knows what she's going into. Like, she would understand. But I think she's like, let me try it. Every one of these characters, I think even Peter Boyle, you know, when he's giving advice and pushing the story, it's like, when is someone going to call me out of my bullshit? I mean, De Niro calls Peter Boyle out on his bullshit. He goes, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know, and he's like, ah, well, whatever. You know, it's like we all are kind of just pushing it to see how far we can go. Yeah. And I'm not saying that Sybil Shepard did anything wrong, but I do think that she's just following it because it is, well, yeah. let me just see. I'll open up one more door. I'll open, go away here one more time. Yeah, I think she's a little bit bored, and I think she's mm-hmm. always in control. Because she's also probably working with people like Albert Brooks, who, no offense to Albert Brooks's character, but is probably more staid and simple, and she knows what she's getting. But, you know, also, by the way, when she enters the movie and she is this all-white angel, mm-hmm. and she is, like, unlike anything we've seen in the movie before, because every woman we've seen in the movie before she walks into that frame is a prostitute. Right. Which is also a choice that the movie is just making, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they highlight her difference, but also by showing us that basically every other woman on earth is a prostitute in the language of the film. It's really rare that you see a woman in this film who's not a prostitute. I totally agree with you. I think they're showing the point of view. He is looking at everyone as trash and filth. And regardless if they are or they aren't, he's making these determinations. Why is Sybil Shepherd an angel? We don't know. We'd have nothing to back that up. I mean, and, and also, the movie just, I think the movie wants to show a lot of prostitutes. You know what I mean? I mm-hmm. think the movie is like, it'd be cool to have a bunch of women in hot pants, which is fine. I just, I wanted to like know that it did that. Do you know what I mean? Right. I don't want the movie to be like, no, we're just really showing New York how it is, man. But don't you, they want to show a lot of chicks in hot pants. Well, it's a point of view because I also feel like every time you see an African-American character in this film, they are viewed with a lens of really being bad, whether it's a look that's held, whether it's, you know, that guy uh, in the diner who kind of gives the finger guns, the man robbing the store. Every time you see a black character in this film, they are evil. That makes more sense for the worldview that Travis Bickle's character is living in. He is a complete racist, and every time he sees a person of color, they are up to no good. Even if they are sitting in the Belmore Lounge, just like he is, drinking a beer, they're doing something wrong. Although, that guy is right. That's the guy who calls him killer. Right. That's the guy who knows. Because right. these conversations that Travis Bickle has with the men in the coffee shop are so interesting. He walks in and at first they're like, ladies man. Right. Because he is young and he is handsome and he should by any means maybe be a ladies man. Right. And then they change it over a course of a scene or two to kill her because they just sense a different vibe in him. And I'll also go on to say that if you look really closely in the background, and I noticed this, and I didn't count how many times it happened, you're constantly watching people get arrested or beaten. There are things going on in the background, and they're very purposeful, but they're not called attention to. Like in the scene with De Niro and the wizard, there's a guy on a bench, cops pull up, they get out, they kind of rough him up and throw him in the back of the car. It's not a plot point. It's just happening in the street. So I do believe that every choice of what you're seeing is conscious. And and they're trying to make you feel like you're in his world. In his world, he's seeing people getting arrested or beaten all the time. You know, even that shopkeeper who, like, beats the crap out of the the, the, the grocery store robber, it's like, whoa, what what's going on here? Like, he's seeing everyone at their worst. 
and this and it's just helping him feel better about himself. Yeah, and it's New York at its worst. Right. I feel like we might have talked about this a long time ago about how New York Yeah, we did. We did. We talked about the strength French connection, how mm-hmm. this was such an awful part of New York's history. You know, this movie is made right when the cover of the New York Daily News says like Ford to New York City dropped dead. Right. Because they're just giving up on it as like this cesspool where we thought cities failed and everybody should go to the suburbs. And right. now we think suburbs are failing. We want to go into the city. I mean, while they were shooting some of these fictional murders, like, actual murders happened. Like, one time they had – when they have all the cops show up at, like, the end with the bloody murder thing, there was another murder going on. And so they were, like, real cops were getting mixed up with the fake cops. They were just sort of cops. And they were confused and milling around and sorting it out. But it, they just recorded everything because it – well, works. I mean, everything's confusing. Well, it's interesting to note that this movie took place during the garbage strike of New York, which means that the city was extra filthy to begin with. Like, what you're seeing there – is, yes, the city, but the set dressing is the garbage strike. I've been in New York City when you can smell that garbage. I lived in New York City for a long period of time. And even being in that when you're hot, humid, and smelling that garbage, it changes you because it's not pleasant to be anywhere. I used to live in a first-floor apartment building where I had a big sliding glass door that led to the street, which was crazy and disgusting. Uh, and people would just piss on that window all the time. And, you know, uh, homeless people would be sleeping out there. And you're, you could look at it in one way and just be like, oh, this is just, a, you know, it, could, it can put you in a bad mood so easily. I mean, what you're describing sounds like inside and outside, you know, like mm-hmm. safe and not safe. Yeah. And that makes me think of his taxi cab. Like what I admire about the way Scorsese shoots Travis Bickle and his taxi cab, is you're always aware of the windows. You're always aware of the windshields and how they're all rolled up against the smell, against the city. He keeps doing these things like having rain or water or eggs hit the windshield. Mm -hmm. You're always seeing the windshield in a way you don't have to be seeing to kind of make the point that inside this taxi is the only place where Travis Bickle feels okay. And he's not going to roll down the window and he's not going to let his cab interact with people. Well, this movie does start at a crossroads. One of the first things that we hear is, I haven't been sleeping. And I want to do a lot of night shifts. And then we get into this idea that he is not going to go to sleep again, right? And what triggered that? You know, because he might have been a ladies' man, but then something happened that triggered him. We don't know what happened two days before the movie started. Yeah, it's it's unclear how much of a role— Insomnia even plays in this. I'm thinking about like the Nightmare on Elm Street movies where you mm-hmm. see the insomnia slowly drive the kids right. insane. He must be increasingly more insane. And I don't feel like we really see the insomnia part of that in the movie so much. Although he is always drinking caffeine. He's always drinking caffeine, a Coke or a coffee. Disgusting junk food from like, you know, McDonald's to Doritos to just everything in that house is disgusting food, bad for you. that You're putting in garbage into yourself and you're seeing garbage. I mean, but I'm a person who's prone to insomnia. Mm-hmm. And you go fucking crazy. Like right. you really go crazy. Like when I don't sleep for a couple of days— I, that sounds like an exaggeration. Okay, when I only get like two or three or four, four hours of sleep like in a couple of days, I really do feel like I'm walking through the world and my feet don't touch the ground. You're mm. just sort of floating right above the surface of yeah. the carpet here in the studio. Yeah. And it must drive you crazy, but I think he's been crazy for a while because when he's writing that letter to his parents, he says that he hasn't really told them about what he's been doing for a year. This has been going on. Well, which leads me to my question to you, which is, do you think he's suffering from PTSD? He's been in the military. You know, he's still wearing the jacket. We don't know when he got out, but based on his age, probably recently, you know, he 
trains with a gun. We see him train with a gun. He doesn't just pick it up and go. So we don't know. But I think there is an element, and I think there's a very deliberate choice to show that he is a military man. He wears a jacket. I mean, would he have been in Vietnam at this point? I mean, I think we're meant to think he was in Vietnam, and he claims that he's in Vietnam, but he also claims he's in the service. And when he holds guns at the beginning, he's learning how to use them. I kind of wonder if he really was in the military. I'm not totally sure. I mean, he gets into that fight with Albert Brooks uh, the last time he goes there just to yell at Sipple Shepard and says she's just like the rest of them because she doesn't measure up to his ideal that she had no idea she even had to live up to and wouldn't have even if she had known. He gets into this like karate chop position. It's kind of goofy. It's like what I would do if I had to get into like a karate chop position. It doesn't look like he really does karate. Well, I mean, I don't think that karate is a part of the military, but I will say I love that karate move because it was this frantic, you know, anger. Like you've seen crazy people, right, in the street. And you've seen, I've seen people get into like almost old timey boxing positions because it's like, I'm, I'm going to fight you. Uh, you know, they're, they're on the edge. And I just love the way that he like embodied that anger. It was, yeah. it was frantic and it felt dangerous. Yeah. But it's also the pose of somebody who doesn't really know what they're doing. I, I agree. I mean. I mean, if he was a real killer, if he had really been to Vietnam, he would have just been like, hook, like right. no, neck chop or something. Right, right, right. And he's not that guy. I'm unconvinced. And maybe people have other arguments. And I'm down to hear them. I don't think he was in the military because I just think he's crazy and looking for a purpose. You know, I mean, the story mm-hmm. behind why Schrader wrote this, we should talk about that yeah. as like a setting, you know. And by the way, I interviewed Paul Schrader this year and we're going to hear a clip from that. So everything I'm about to say with Paul Schrader, I do like the guy a lot. But And he's very open about his demons. And maybe that's the best thing any of us can hope mm-hmm. to be is that he's very open about his demons. But so Paul Schrader writes Taxi Driver when he's at the worst point of his life. It's 1972. He's living in his car. His wife has left him. He has like a bleeding ulcer. He has no friends. He's in the hospital. Nobody comes to come visit him. He's super alone. He's feeling a little suicidal. And his whole life is about like guns and porn. He's watching a ton of porn. And then there's this real life assassination attempt that happens when a guy named Arthur Bremer tries to shoot Alabama Governor George Wallace. And he does hit him and George, George Wallace is paralyzed. And what happens from here is that this guy, Arthur Bremer, his diary is published, and it's called An Assassin's Diary. And An Assassin's Diary is basically all the narration from Taxi Driver. And so Paul Schrader is, like, reading this diary that is a real-life guy who attempted the same kind of thing, talking about why he did it. And he writes a diary exactly like this. I mean, the the narration that we even have Robert De Niro writing down feels kind of like the same thing. He's writing stuff like... This will be one of the most closely read pages since the scrolls in these caves. And I couldn't find a pen for 40 seconds and went mad. My fuse is about burnt. There's going to be an explosion soon. I had it. I want something to happen. I was supposed to be dead a week ago and a day ago, or at least infamous. Wow. So Paul Schrader is reading these diaries. He's thinking about this movie. He says, he literally says, Travis Bickle is just me. It's me without any brains. And then you get to hear that diary In the movie, you get to hear him learning his language, figuring out how he's going to be the person he thinks he is on paper. I want to play this scene. And actually, as I play this scene, too, let's listen to what Bernard Herrmann's score does. Because right when he says the word change, the score changes and it gets this energy and it gets propulsive. Everywhere. Bars and cars, sidewalks, stores, everywhere. There's no escape. God's the only man. 
June 8th. My life has taken another turn again. The days move along with regularity over and over. One day indistinguishable from the next. A long, continuous chain. Then suddenly, there is a change. change is he's going to go buy a gun he's going to make it all really real and by the way i love that little shot of him at his desk writing this because you see not only does he have the candidate poster the palpatine poster he's also got the let's get organized and i I have no idea if he bought that before or after his date with sybil zeppard it's like an honorary thing i feel like it i feel like it was after because he like that was him like kind of the first step of him putting his life together was getting that sign because he said he wanted to get that sign (laughs) Um, And that's what I love so much about the diaries that we get to see in this movie because you see this character trying to work it out, trying to be his own mythological version. There's um, his scene when he does finally get the guns. He's looking in the mirror, the infamous scene, the you talking to me scene where he's in the mirror looking at himself. And as we play this clip, I want to listen to how he's playing a character, how he's trying to be this figure that he writes about in his diary and how he has to even do starts and stops, how he doesn't totally have it right, how this is, you know, in the All About Eve episode, we were talking about the way you can see a character is in the moments they're alone. Like yeah. when Betty Davis acts like she's cool and then runs down the stairway to find her boyfriend. When he's alone, he's a kid playing dress-up and trying to be this G.I. Joe. Uh, I'm trying you. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Oh, yeah? Huh? Okay. Okay, first, one other crazy thing about the sound design. I love that there's this helicopter in the background that shows up, this idea that the real world is still going to impinge on what he's doing, this reminder of the real world. Because I think a lot of people would have just done that scene airless. Right. But they don't. But on the bigger issue, I think Taxi Driver lives on dies on whether or not you watch that scene and you're like, Travis Bickle, pretty cool guy, or Travis Bickle, overgrown kid. I totally agree. In that scene... Which has become such a cultural meme, right? But in the context of the movie, it's one of the most disturbing things. It's not over the top. I think people who are not familiar with Robert De Niro or know him post uh, Meet the Parents don't see how kind of dangerous and unhinged and how simplistic and realistic this performance is. And this scene is a very powerful scene because – it's an adult playing dress up. You can see he's not mentally right. I mean, you're seeing it throughout the whole film, but that scene in particular. I do think it's interesting, though, the origin of that scene, which did you know that the whole you talking to me was improvised? Scorsese just wanted to get him playing in the mirror, just, you know, kind of figuring it out. So, so De Niro is improvising within character. So the entire bit actually comes from a Bruce Springsteen concert that De Niro was at just a couple days before. Born to Run had just come out. It was big. And everyone's like, Bruce, Bruce. They're shouting his name. And Springsteen turns like, you talking to me? You talking to me? And, and he, you know, feigning this like kind of like, is that, is that who you want? 
And I love that De Niro took that so coy. and brought that in. I know it's coy for Springsteen. Are you talking to me? And then I love how it's brought in and it's such a different thing. But I also, I mean, I don't think that Travis Bickle is seeing Bruce Springsteen. But I do believe that it's the same idea. Like he's seeing someone do it in some other way and then kind of, you know, making it into his own you know, more deadly version. Well, yeah, and that conversation reminds me of him and Sybil Shepherd. He's having a conversation with another person who doesn't mm-hmm. exist because his responses are the only thing that matter. Yeah. He's building it up in his head. He has this fantasy girlfriend, this fantasy enemy. Everything is a fantasy. And the other person's responses, he never even gets taken into consideration. Before we move too far away from it, the score in this movie is fantastic. Bernard Herrmann did it, also did the score for Susan Kane, and another AFI classic, Psycho, uh, did it for Cape Fear, the original, and North by Northwest. An amazing composer, kind of in the pantheon of great composers, who actually and sadly died just a few hours after handing in uh, the score for this film. Uh, you know, at the age of 64, he passed away, and he was posthumously nominated for an Oscar, but I want you to hear why Martin Scorsese hired him. His music, is, his music is like a vortex. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It reminds me of some of Wagner and, and uh, Tristan and his old. It reminds me of some of that. It has, it has a feeling that uh, it never comes to completion. And it starts all over again. Just when you think it's finishing, it starts all over again. It's kind of like a, whirl, a, a whirlpool in a vortex. Emotional one, a psychological one. And it has sight, deep psychological power. Yeah, the score is so incredible. And what I like about it is it's just bizarre. And I don't yeah. mean even just classically bizarre. Like, let's play just a little bit of the intro music where you see him fighting with the two themes, the romantic yeah. theme, the dream, like, this is how the world should be to Travis Bickle theme, clashing up against this, like, nasty, harsh, like, back-breaking kind of sound. But he's doing all sorts of stuff in here. The soundtrack is crazy. I mean, at the very end, when he becomes a hero, Bernard Herrmann starts throwing in, like, harps doing scales. Like, it's wild. Well, and reading about working with Bernard Herrmann, Scorsese was surprised at this because the the infusion of jazz, like, he really captured the mental state of this character. And, it, and I, I think that idea of it never ending, it just, it kind of, you're in this loop with him. Yeah, and there's sounds that almost sound like they shouldn't be there, that are just there to get you on edge. There's like this rattlesnake kind of sounding tambourine. There's all sorts of different types of military drums. And you'll notice that at the end, for no real reason except to get us on edge, we hear the sound of almost like insects chattering. All right, so Amy, we're talking about cab drivers, and I think that our culture is changing, and now gone are the days of the cab drivers, and here are the days of the Uber and Lyft drivers. So I thought, what better person to talk about taxi driver than someone who spent time behind the wheel as a Uber driver. Um, His name is Kurt Neal. He is an actor and a writer. You can see him on uh, shows like Fresh Off the Boat, uh, and 
He also wrote this book that uh, is pretty great. It's called This Movie Will Require Dinosaurs. It's basically uh, inspired by his Tumblr, which was called Untitled Screenplays, where they just did little snippets of failed screenplays. Uh, It's a great honor to have Kurt Neal here with us. Okay, so Kurt, I'm going to read you something that's from the New York Times. The year that Taxi Driver came out, their film critic Vincent Camby was talking about year-end lists. And he said that a real-life taxi driver told him the year that Taxi Driver came out that people who make slanderous movies about taxi drivers like Taxi Driver should be taken out and shot. Okay. As a modern-day driver, as an Uber driver, how do you feel about that? Do you agree? I mean, he's obviously a terrible guy. (laughs) He's probably a taxi driver who was a complete asshole. I was an Uber driver for like four or five years, and I was a jerk plenty of times. So... I don't blame someone for making that movie about (laughs) crazy taxi drivers. (laughs) So you can see a little bit of yourself or the mentality of the cab driver and taxi driver in yourself a little bit, or am I putting words in your mouth? No, no, that's what was crazy. I hadn't seen Taxi Driver in years. I watched it for the first time in at least 10 years last night, and I was really scared by how much I identified with him. Like, as he started to, like, just judge all these people and pick apart, like, how disgusting the city was— I was like, I get it, man. Not that I would ever do that. I'll no, say that right now. Of course. Of course not. I'm scared of guns. People, are you, even if you're not talking to them, are you sizing them up? Oh, yeah. Okay. Constantly. See, I got good. I'm, I try to be a friendly guy, like, day to day. And at the beginning, I would always try to be friendly with the passengers. And I would be willing to, to chat up. And maybe I would even start this conversation first. But I got really good eventually at, like, I just said one thing, like, hey, how are you? Hmm? How you doing? And then based off whatever their reaction was, I knew with 100% certainty whether they wanted to talk at all or not at all. I could tell right away. And then from there, like, some people would really fake it and try really hard to be friendly and chat me up. And I'm like, you don't have to do that. I'd rather not talk to. Or the people that didn't want to talk. Sometimes you could tell that they just didn't feel like it. Sometimes you could tell they were a fucking asshole that would never respect me. So they don't want to talk to me. The amount of disconnect so many people have with someone that's, like, doing this thing for them is really strange. Like, and I'm sure it's the same thing with any sort of like butlers or like, you know, right. servants even. The degree to which they're not like paying attention to you and don't acknowledge that you even exist while you're like, yeah. risking your life and like your most important valuable asset, your car, just right. to get them to their work. And that's coming from someone that doesn't want to talk to a driver when I take an Uber that much. Well, do you think it's because it's a personal car? Yeah. You're in a personal space. It doesn't feel like a cab. And then that way... Even though it is, it's a gig economy kind of a thing. You're, you know, I don't, like it's. I know. I always feel like I want to keep it as simple as I can for you, and almost be invisible in this back as the passenger. Yeah, as a passenger. Yeah, that's yeah. how I feel. There's still a way to do that, right? While still like giving them some eye contact and saying right. "How are you?" Right. Back without just like yeah, yeah, yeah. and then right. just on your phone for the rest of the ride. Like, yeah. who, well, the did yeah. is interesting. I mean, because there's the scene in Taxi Driver where Martin Scorsese gets in the back, and you can tell right. he's trying to impress Travis Bickle with, yeah. like, the way he talks about, like, women. Like, totally. Have people ever tried to just, like, impress you or be like, hey, check me out? Oh, constantly. And I, I, I notice that more as a passenger when drivers try to do it. But, yeah, like, I would definitely notice it's always guys. They're always trying to, like, connect with you about chicks and, like, immediately go like they don't even they don't even try to work up to it of like oh you seen someone you, you got a girlfriend or something oh you guys you guys getting along it's a good relationship they'll go right into like she's like hot like how's her fucking body and oh. right into like they want descriptions right. and shit and it's like dude you got you gotta at least work up to that like i haven't established that i'm a but, guy that's willing to talk that way at all <laughs> what have you learned about just watching people on dates or like 
long-term it, couples getting in a car. It, yeah, it you can tell there's basically two varieties. Like either the couple that gets in there and like just immediately goes to their own phone and doesn't really talk to each other, or there's the couples that are hugging on each other, like ignoring the seatbelts. Honestly, like uncomfortably affectionate. Which is like, I can't decide which one I didn't like more. Right. Like, it's sad to watch a couple be so like distant from each other, but it's also like, I don't want to have to not look, they're not wearing their seatbelt and I feel the need to tell them like, you got to put your seatbelt on and like, it's way too much pressure on me. Well, what did you think about, about Travis Bickle just as a driver? Were you like watching his driving technique? I honestly was. And I could tell <laughs> he was a good, he's like one of those like good drivers that knows he's good to the point that he's kind of driving dangerously, but he gets away with it because he's a good driver. Does that make sense? Right. <laughs> like, especially the way he would, like, just stare at people so much when people were talking to him, especially right. that scene with with uh, Scorsese where he was just, like, staring at him in the back, like, not responding to him when he's talking about killing his wife who's right there. And he was just staring at him. And I'm like, dude, this guy's in control. He knows exactly what he's doing. I like this guy. And that's when I started to get scared <laughs> that I was connecting with him so right, much. you saw the thing. But moment. still, that, like, last, last, last shot is him driving around this girl who he thinks broke his heart a little bit. Like, have, has that ever happened to you? Like, had anybody in the back seat that you knew? Oh, my God, yeah. I, I took an ex on a date. I picked up an oh, ex wow. that was on a date and drove her, like, it took, like, 20 minutes from the one place I picked them up to, like, I picked them up from, like, a burger spot and took them to a bar. Oh, my oh, God. Wow. Like, a recent-ish ex? No. It was, like, within a year or two, and we were still basically friends. Um, but, like, it was, like, an ex that, like, we, like, definitely dated for, like, three or four months. And then there was a couple, you know, right. re-hookups yeah. every now and again. Then to just pick her up on oh, a date. Wow. And the guy was, like... Like a scientist or something had to have been making a lot of money and had to be really smart to do what he was doing. Do you well, think she told him who you were? I bet, yeah. It was a good bar conversation from when they got a Yeah, it was good it. fodder. She could make fun of like how much more successful he is than me. Well, how did you play it? Were you like, hey, I'm going to kill him with kindness? I was or... super chill and friendly and like I didn't have a problem at all, but I was just sweating bullets the whole time. I, I had to get out of there as fast as possible. Are there any tips and tricks that we should know as passengers. You're also a passenger, but you've also done more hours than any of us have done in these cars. Like, what are the things that we should know? Definitely, like, don't leave them waiting. Got it. Like, as a passenger, I'm constantly checking my phone when they're on the way. Me too. And I'm once I know they're close, I go out and I wait by the curb. And then similarly, like, be ready to engage. Like, be polite when you get in. But also, it's easy to tell when a driver doesn't want to talk. So, cool. Right. Like, say, how you doing? If they don't want to talk, check out. Uh, but for real, you've never dropped anybody off at any of the porno theaters on Santa Monica? Never porno theaters, no sketchy spots. That's why I avoided the late nights. I didn't yeah. want to deal with that shit. The one time I tried to drive late night, this guy was so ready to throw up and didn't know where he was. He needed to go. And I couldn't Ooh. understand him. And I was like, I can't. I never want to deal with this again. I was terrified the whole time. Yeah, that and because your car, too. So you're putting more of a importance on it. or so you know, it's Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, you have, to, you have to clean that car. I hate it. Yeah, I had... I never, I know plenty of people that had people throw up in their car. The one time there was a cleanup uh, required. Um, this is a little weird. I don't know if this is worth telling, but I picked up a couple girls that had been like day drinking all day after probably a day at the beach. I think right. they were still in like bikinis with something over yeah. it. And while we're driving, they're, they're clearly drunk. And they're having a good time, but they're, they're pretty drunk. And as we start to get closer, one of the girls just kind of, she just, she's kind of like clams up and oh, no. she gets really uncomfortable and nervous and she's kind of looking around for her towel or something. And I kind of notice, I'm like, everything all right? You okay? Yeah, yeah. And then as soon as I get to their spot, they jump out of the car and she just runs in the house and I look back and she had menstruated on my seat. And it's, it's so, I didn't know what to do. Cause like, 
shit, that sucks. This ruins right. my day. I have to right. go get this taken care of. But it's also obviously so embarrassing for her. Probably ruined her day a little yeah. bit. It was so – I didn't know what to do or how to handle it. But I still had to like – Where do you go, by the way? I'm always wondering about that. I Where just you... Googled the first place that could do like a steam clean. Oh, Because I wanted it. to get taken care of as fast as possible. But then I also had to like message Lyft or Uber, whichever right. it was. Like they kind of have to cover this. Like I shouldn't have yeah, to pay yeah, yeah. for this. I feel bad. But they should pay for it. Oh. <laughs> it was terrible. All right, so Kurt, tell us a little bit about what you have going on, where we can find you, where we can follow you. Um, and I want to talk about this book, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just at Kurt Neal on Twitter and Instagram. That's Kurt with a C, Neal, N-E-I-L-L. Um, I got some hot videos on Vimeo. You can All search right. me there. I got some uh, hot shows on Channel 101. And then, yeah, the book. I got this book. This movie will require dinosaurs. It's technically still for sale. It's uh, a really fun book that I enjoyed. Uh, you had me contribute to your website, mm-hmm. and then I got a copy of this book, uh, mm-hmm. and I loved it. This yeah. is the first I've ever thought of this comparison, but it's a little Jack Handy if he's yes. a screenwriter. It's 100%. basically that. It's basically an idiot that doesn't know what he's doing, but he thinks he's like going to be a great writer. Well, thank you so much. This is great. Of course. Thank you, guys. That was a blast. That was awesome. I want to take a moment to give a brief detour to Easy Andy. Easy Andy is the gun dealer in this movie, and I am fascinated by this scene. It's a really interesting scene where, you know, he's buying black market guns from this very interesting character. And I think that, you know, Scorsese has a history of casting really interesting characters in his films. They kind of pop in all different ways. Um, But Easy Andy is, I think, one of the most interesting characters that Scorsese discovered. Did you know he did a documentary with him? No. It's a 55-minute documentary called American Boy, a profile of Stephen Prince. And I want you to hear this one clip from it and see if it reminds you of anything. And she was out, man. And it was my myself and his, and his her boyfriend. And he said, uh, and her heartbeat was dropping down. And we got everything out, oxygen, and nothing was working. And he looked at me and he says, well, you're going to have to give her an adrenaline shot. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you give it to me. He said, I can't. Like a doctor working on someone in his own family. I said, that's bullshit. You've known her two days. Who the fuck is that? You know, and, and, and he said, no, I can't do it. And so I, I had, we had the medical dictionary. You know how you give an adrenaline shot? Okay, your adrenaline needle's like about that big, and you've got to give it into the heart. And you have to put it in a stabbing motion and then plunge down on a thing. I got the medical dictionary out, looked it up. Got a magic marker, made a magic marker where her heart was, measured down, <laughs> measured down like a, uh, two or three ribs, and measured in between there. And I just stood there and I went, ah! and then, uh, and she came back like that. Oh my god! Crazy, right? Oh my god! Fucking crazy! That that scene from Pulp Fiction is taken from the Easy Andy doc almost verbatim. Because there's no way that a guy like Tarantino hadn't seen that. 100%. I mean, Tarantino views Taxi Driver as one of his favorite films of all time. I mean, it's crazy. And by the way, this doc is worth watching. It starts with Scorsese and Easy Andy in a hot tub. And then it continues on with Easy Andy basically just in his house telling stories. There's sometimes people around, sometimes people not. It's Fascinating. And what's so weird about this is you have like Scorsese making this film with real life character, like yeah. people, like characters from New York, like even the drummer guy with like the shellacked hair and all yeah. the makeup on. Real guy hangs out in New York, was drumming on the streets, given the same patter to just real people forever his whole life. 
So there's all these real people in this world that's very surreal. He's jamming them both together. You know, it's, 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 I got distracted during that gun scene because like so many of the guns that Travis Bickle is considering buying are fictional guns. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not fictional as in they don't exist, but fictional as in they're famous for being in movies. Right. Then you have Dirty Harry's Magnum in that you have like the Walter PPK. You have the James Bond gun. He's picking from guns that turn him into a fictional character. Well, I would argue that those are the guns that people are attracted to because he's not a gunsman. He is someone who has seen things on TV. We see that the only real connection he has to the outside world is his television and these porn things. So he, he's, of course, going to gravitate to the guns that, quote unquote, his heroes have, uh, you know, used. Yeah, and the first thing he asked for is the forty-four, mm-hmm. the same gun that that dude in the back of his cab said he wanted to use. Yeah. That's why I don't think he was in the military. There is an interesting moment here. If he's a poser, then he's doing the greatest act of posing because when we see Travis Bickle and the camera kind of just cranes up and you see him with the mohawk, that was something that soldiers in Vietnam did before they would go on a kamikaze mission. That was a very specific thing that happened in Vietnam. So either this is a guy who maybe was kicked out of basic training you know, because of being mentally unstable. But he's been around soldiers because he knows that this is something that soldiers do. I just thought that was interesting, though, that he picked the hairstyle of a soldier. He's wearing the soldier's jacket, and he's on some sort of mission to clean up the filth, you know, which is, I think, a a lot of the times our military's point of view, which is we're going to come in, and we're going to make things right, and we're going to clean this up, and we're going to set it straight again. I mean, because I can imagine in New York City in 1976 – there's a lot of vets. He would have had a lot of opportunities to learn this stuff, too. Mm-hmm. There's probably a lot of guys selling their jackets. They don't want any piece of it. So maybe his name isn't even Travis Bickle? Maybe it's not. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? So clearly, you know, De Niro's assassination attempt is thwarted. Um, he runs off, scared, goes home, and decides, well, now if I can't assassinate Palpatine, I'm going to rescue this 12-year-old girl who seemingly doesn't even need rescuing, um, and then does this kind of murderous rampage at the end of the film, which is a very gory, um, intense sequence, which leaves him very badly wounded. And, uh, and again, another kind of classic scene, him bloody with the mohawk, doing a finger gun to his own head. And then we kind of pull out, and then we're in this next part of the film, the postscript of the film, where he is a hero. He has achieved this adoration and acknowledgement for what he did. He has become a success. Well, I mean, some people have said that they think it's a dream, right? I think he's dead, yes. Really? I don't. Really? Yeah. Okay. Why do you think he's dead? Okay. I think he's dead because he puts the finger gun to his head and he clicks the trigger. And then the camera changes. The camera is above everyone else, and it floats out of the room, above the police officers, over the door, over the scene. And I feel like this is a movie that's a first-person perspective, and we are now watching the perspective change to literally, like, arguably a soul kind of leaving, and then cut to now, you know, now of then, and he's back to normal, perfectly fine, driving a cab, no injuries. I mean, he was shot up. Looks good, looks healthy, and I feel like it's the perfect thing. It's the thing that you want. And I feel like if we're saying this entire podcast, this is a movie that is, you know, 
trying to show that macho taking to its natural conclusion is a bad thing. And this movie is uh, potentially feminist. It's the least feminist thing you can do to say like, well, at the end, he got one over on Sybil Shepherd because now he doesn't want her and she's garbage. You know, it's like, well, no, 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 that's not the moral of the story. So I feel like the only way that you can achieve that moral is if it's his fantasy, his death fantasy. Now, the other way to look at it is he did do all that sort of stuff and society just accepts it and we put people on pedestals and we don't ever look in their past, Jared from Subway. Uh, but, uh, but I feel like thematically it makes more sense that he's dead. That's my, that's my case, Your Honor. I mean, I wouldn't be sad if he was dead. And part of why I don't buy the, the other argument, which is that all of this whole shit is a total fantasy, is the camera does know enough to look at Jodie Foster as he's killing people and it's registering that he 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 thinks he's saving a girl. He is traumatizing a girl. That girl has just seen two people be bloodily murdered in front of her who have been parental figures in an awful way, lover figures in an awful way. They've had an outsized bad influence on her life, but she has also spent a lot of time with them, and they're now getting bloodily murdered in front of her. And she's not happy. She's not no. like, yeah. Right. He's ruining her life. Right. So I think the camera knowing that his perspective on being a hero in that scene means it's not fake. To him being dead, I wonder. I mean, I mean, De Niro has said, like, that's an interesting theory, but no, he's not dead. Uh, and I'm inclined to believe that. I guess part of, like, I like the idea that society rewards the wrong people. Right. I think that fits into a theme that I enjoy. I know that Schrader himself was really influenced by this one song when he was writing the script. He was writing the script, and he was listening a lot to this song by Harry Chapin called Taxi. And Taxi is about a guy who's a taxi driver, picks up a girl, realizes the girl is his ex-girlfriend, who's now a famous actress, and he talks about just kind of the confusing, weird emotions of that moment. There was not much more for us to talk about. Whatever we had once was gone. So I turned my cab into the driveway, past the gate and the fine trim logs. And she said, we must get together But I knew it'd never be arranged Then she hand me $20 for a 250 fare She said, Harry, keep the change Well, another man might have been angry And another man might have been hurt But another man never would let her go there's a moment where it looks like he thinks he won that final challenge with Sybil Shepherd by refusing to let her pay for the fare. And you just see in her face like, okay, thing that happened, go on. Right. And not like, oh, he got me. What did I do? Well, and I think there's also an interesting comeuppance for it if he's not dead. But I think that the most damning thing they do if he's not dead is show him seeing himself in the rearview mirror, which is a place that he reserves for all of the people in the back of his cab that he thinks is filth and garbage. And then he sees himself as filth and garbage. And that's the kind of the last hard kind of cut of the movie, almost a horror movie cut, like, I am the filth. And it's boom, we're out. Yeah, it makes you wonder if he's going to just do something like this again. Like, is he sated or not? Well, talking about those messages, you know, I mentioned that I interviewed Paul Schrader this fall. I interviewed him for the movie First Reformed. If people haven't seen First Reformed, go see it. Paul Schrader wrote and directed it. Uh, it stars Ethan Hawke as, like a, as a priest. And it's about a guy who convinces himself he's a hero and goes on this, like, tiny Travis Bickle journey. But he's also 
you know, a man of the cloth who's deeply worried about religious issues. It's a great movie. Everybody should right. go see it. But we had a talk because, you know, Schrader wrote so many of these great 70s films. So I asked him about it. Going back and, like, looking at the films of the 60s and the 70s and kind of, like, reevaluating them, reevaluating that moment. Like, was it the time that made the films great or was it the films? Anyway, I mean, it was the audiences, you know? Yeah. Uh, whenever audiences ask art for answers, art will rise to the challenge and there will be great art. And there was a period there where movies were in the center of the culture, which isn't true anymore. <laughs> And there were about six or seven questions going around that society was wrestling with. Women's rights, uh, civil rights, homosexual rights, drug revolution, anti-military revolution. Of course, movies responded. You know, coming home, unfinished woman, you know. They started saying, you, you, you want an answer? We'll give you an answer. And on the other hand, when people don't want serious movies, it's almost impossible to make one. Yeah. You know? But what your film does that I think we really need right now is it's talking about destructive young men. Yeah. Who aren't sure where to put their energies. Like, I mean, like what's the appeal of Well, that's, of course, that's the same thing as Taxi Driver 45 years ago. Well, yeah, and I was wondering, like, do some of the angry young men of today you feel like get the wrong idea, like they get a superficial gleaning of Taxi Driver. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's true. Obviously, Taxi Driver hit the zeitgeist. And that's the oddest thing, you know. Uh, how do you plan on it? You can't. You can't. It just sort of happens in a certain movie, you know. But then to watch it change underneath <laughs> you when people start stop remembering the context and start reinterpreting it for their their 21st century lives. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, often men, always men, will come to me and say, Taxi Driver is a film that made me want to be a filmmaker, you know, change my life. And I say, let me guess, you saw it when you were 14. (laughs) And they said, how did you know? I said, because that's the spot where you've been watching action films and male violence films, and somebody recommends Taxi Driver, and you see it in that context and you realize, oh, there's a different way these movies can work. That's so interesting. I totally agree with what he's saying. It's an action movie done in a different way, and I think it has this strong moral compass, which is an interesting way to do a film like this because it leaves you questioning yourself. You know, I think maybe the most perfect example of this contradiction you're talking about between the art we like that challenges us and the art that is also that art that also freaks us out about how it's portrayed. I think our best evidence of that happens when Taxi Driver goes to Cannes when it comes out. Mm -hmm. It goes to Cannes and it wins the Palme d'Or, which is like huge, right? It's massive. I mean, American films almost never win the Palme d'Or. This is like a very indie film, too. I mean, this is like a – like when I watched it, it felt very – like a low budget. This had no real push behind it. I mean, yes, everyone in it was successful, but they were doing something that was, you know, very alternative for the time. I mean, they're all their careers. Every single person in this made a left turn, pay cut, and did this like gritty little thing. So for it to go to Cannes is kind of surprising at that point, right? It is. And like some of the people, here's some of the people who are on the jury. Mm-hmm. Costas Gavras, if people have watched Z, I love Z. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Z no. yet? 
if we get to do some foreign films, yeah. Z is like, ah, oh, it's like wow. chef's kiss. You'll love Z. Oh, my God. I just want you to watch Z like right now. Costa Scavros is on it. Sergio Leone, you know, mm-hmm. king of like violence, yeah. king of all of this stuff. And also Tennessee Williams. And Tennessee wow. Williams was the head of the jury. And Taxi Driver wins, but Tennessee Williams hates Taxi Driver. Wow. He, he gets voted out, basically. He gets okay, voted yeah. down. And this is what he said about it. The period is marked by serious films without hope, some of which reflect a violence seldom seen before. We are well aware that this violence and hopelessness reflects the image of our society. However, we fear that violence breeds violence and that instead of being a denunciation, it leads our society to an escalation of violence. The jury expresses its wish that cinema not become a source of hatred. Basically, like giant asterisks, guys, I'm freaked out about this movie. Yeah. I'm freaked out. I'm giving a stamp to it. I mean, it's an interesting conversation and a, a much larger one to have because the images that you see, you know, probably don't affect 95% of the people. You know, people can take it and walk away from it. But then that 5% that are looking for some meaning, looking for some deeper connection to things can be triggered by it, right? I mean, this is before John Hinckley Jr. tried the assassination on Ronald Reagan, but the same idea, obsessed with a young girl, Jodie Foster, and then goes to try to kill the president to impress her. Well, dude, John Hinckley said in his trial that he watched Taxi Driver 15 times. Whoa. And he said that when he went in to shoot the president, the words he used were that he felt like he was in a movie. Yeah. But then Taxi Driver is influenced by this other assassination, the Bremer assassination attempt. Oh, right. But then Bremer said that he was influenced by a clockwork orange. So, wow. I mean, this conversation about media and the movies has been going on forever. And maybe that's why I'm harping so much on how people read this movie because it does make me nervous that I think there's actual evidence that people have read it wrong. And a lot of people aren't. And a lot of people are super smart about it. But right. a movie like this is kind of like a gun. But it's interesting because here's, a, here's a, a, a parallel we should just draw. So then you have can this year Black Klansman goes there and gets like a standing ovation. And I would argue Black Klansman, let's take everything out of it besides just what it's saying. I think Black Klansman has such a clear like point of view going like racism is bad and left unchecked, it will this will happen. And that uh, it's almost so straight down the middle. It's like almost like a fastball to be like, you can't miss the meaning of it. And it's interesting to see, I think, if this if that movie was made in the 70s, it wouldn't be as clean cut or clear as that. And then one right now where people are like, no, 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 we need to say this now. And maybe it's the fact of the culture that we're in in the world where we need to be like, no, no, we need to stand up and be like, no, no, we have to get in front of this now. I mean, it, you can be artistic, but we have to make sure that we know what side of the fence we're standing yeah, on. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're betting on artists to do the loud fighting for us. Right. Like, that artist is my team. Like, go Captain America. Right. Like, I love it whenever Chris Evans says something mean to Trump. I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's my Captain America. But we it, we are dependent on people saying the right things very clearly. And if they say the wrong thing, we get very mad at them. It's very childish in a way. I've been thinking a lot about this, about how childish I feel. Right. Even that I'm not speaking for myself. But kind of to your point, like— I almost wish Black Klansman had been made in the 70s because I feel like you see Spike Lee wrestling with trying to make this feel-good movie in an era where he knows better. Right. Like, he just knows better. Because yeah. when you think about the ending of Black Klansman, and I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but I feel like the movie basically has four endings. I totally it's agree. Like the good ending, and then the but racism still exists ending, and then, but it's good, though, and then the racism still exists ending because he has to give both endings because he can't give one because neither one is correct. In talking about all of this, too, I'm I'm thinking a little bit about Jodie Foster's character. And, you know, she was 12 years old at the time. We talked about that a little bit earlier. But um, she was playing a prostitute, a 12-year-old prostitute. 
And it was interesting how little I was affected by that role because of where we are in a society now and what I've seen in media already. It didn't have the shock value that I'm sure it had in the 70s to have a 12-year-old girl playing a 12-year-old prostitute. I think. Maybe I'm totally off on that. When Scorsese went to the Oscars, he had to have bodyguards because he was getting death threats for it. Although I do agree with you that there's not really a shock there. And I think it's because it's a good performance, but there's nothing – prostitutish about right. her. It, Do you know what I yes, mean? Yes, I totally like, agree, yeah. It, she's so clean and healthy. She's wearing right. she's wearing white too. Right. Really the only shocking moment of it is when he talks to Harvey Keitel and Harvey Keitel's listing all the things you can do uh, to her mm-hmm. when she's out of earshot. So yeah. it's, you don't even have to see her face be like, it's not like she's saying, here's right. all the things. They even do my favorite phony sex thing mm-hmm. in this movie, which is they go to her motel room. Yeah. And it's just got an impossible number of candles. And as soon as you see the impossible number of candles, you're like, nobody's really having sex here. This is not <laughs> We talked about Tennessee Williams' reaction to this film. What were people's reactions? I know your favorite, Pauline Kael, loved this movie. Pauline Kael loved this movie. Manny Farber of Film Comment did not like it. He wrote a really, 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 really long, very detailed review. He actually gets a couple of facts wrong in here, so I was reading the review oh, being wow. like, all right, Manny Farber, I'm with you. Oh, no, you made a mistake. Oh, Manny Farber. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, but his review was called The Power and the Glory, and mm-hmm. we'll read a little bit from it. With its nervous, generous hoopla of techniques, including the tick of flicking suddenly to a ceiling shot directly down on a seduction, a gun sale, or a bloodbath episode, almost every moment of a lumpen figure's hellish career has an assaulting quality, like a gnat banging suicidally against the light fixture. The character of the loner, and he's getting into these archetypes that we really do love in our movies, which dominate American films from Philip Marlowe to Will Penny to Dirty Harry Callahan, has seldom been given such a double-cell treatment. The intense De Niro is sold as a misfit psychotic, and at the same time, a charismatic star who centers every shot and is given a prismatic detailing. The movie's aim is to turn a supposed nobody that nobody sees into a glamorous giant who's bigger than all of New York. So he's really hammering at this contradiction that's just inherent in having De Niro in this movie at all. Yeah. Um... Taxi Driver is a half-half movie. Half of it is a skimpy storyline with muddled motivation about the way an undereducated misfit would act, and the other half is a clever, confusing, hypnotic sell. Why should a movie that is so anti-American go so dull when it hits a glib, phony populist running for president? He's talking about the Palpatine character and wishing that they had done a lot more with him. Empty politics are more of a U.S. tragedy than a lone assassin. Ooh. By the way, when you were reading that, you said that the, the guy running for office was Palpatine, which is the same confusion I had. It's Palantine, but I kept on thinking about this Star Wars character. I was like, he is evil. <laughs> you, you, the oh, emperor. Yeah. The emperor was running. Um, well, let me ask you a question. Yes. Because I enjoy that Manny Farmer is really digging into this like relationship between Robert De Niro and the camera, between the way Scorsese mm-hmm. sees De Niro in the camera, because this was already their second film together. They'd done Mean Streets. Right. I mean, this is one of three films that Scorsese and De Niro have on the AFI Top 100 together. I mean, they have this, they have Goodfellas, and they have Raging Bull. Do you think the AFI Top 100 needs three of this pairing? I mean, we only get like one Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. I think that you can't negate whatever Scorsese was doing in that 70s run – I know that you have an aversion to Goodfellas. We can get into that later. Um, We're going to have a whole episode about it. Yeah, we'll talk all about it. (laughs) But um, I feel like each one of those films are very different. You know, if you just look at it on face value, like Goodfellas and Raging Bull and Taxi Driver are very different films. And and I am a fan of Scorsese. I'm always kind of interested in what he does, how he challenges himself, you know, whether or not it's like something like Hugo 
or it's, you know, like um, Wolf of Wall Street. I feel like he's always playing with tone and style. Do I love every one of his films? Absolutely not. But I think there's merit in every one of his films. And I've, I don't know. I, you're right. In 100 films, should there be three pairings of Scorsese and De Niro? I don't know. In a couple of years, will it be one pairing of Scorsese and De Niro, one pairing of Scorsese and DiCaprio? You know, where does it all fall down? I mean, I wonder which one people would kill. Because I know people passionately love all three of those. But if yeah. we only have two on the list... Which I, I think I, I think you I would I think you would find this movie being killed. I think Taxi Driver would fall off the list if you were to say between these three, it's the one that I think is not the fun one. It's not the rewatchable one. I think which comes to our question: Do you believe this is in the right spot on the AFI list? Do you even believe it belongs on the AFI list? I mean, it's such a huge part of our culture. So to imagine a world where it's not on the list feels like a betrayal of a touchstone that we talk about all the time. I kind of agree with you, yeah. But I don't know if I love it and want it on the list this high. But I feel like Scorsese as a director has done a lot of very solid things. I don't think he's as diverse as so many directors who have had his type of career. Okay. I think a lot of his stuff has the same kind of like smell. You know, the same kind of macho smell. Which I guess is why I'm unconvinced that he needs three when so many people aren't on the list at all. But but they are seminal works of cinema, right? I think people would argue that Taxi Driver is one of one of the best American films ever made. And I think it feels like that to many people because it pushes boundaries. It's I mean it's affected the directors that have come after it and the way that we tell stories. I don't know. I I I I, I, <laughs> I guess I, I'm the troll now if this is the movie about trolling. I'm trolling. I'm trolling and asking like is it just important to our generation? Well, I don't know. In watching it right now and, and feeling like I watched it, like I came from the world of watching King of Comedy, right? That was the psycho De Niro that I knew. I like that movie. I like that movie a lot. Um, and so I saw this and I really saw it with first time eyes in seeing it here. And I'm like, oh, this feels so relevant to me. This idea of we all are screaming, but we also want to be hugged. You know, it's like that idea. And I feel like it affected me. This is the first time I saw it. I have no, I'm not a 14-year-old. I am not, you know, I, I've i seen a lot of films. I've seen a lot of movies that he has done. And I watched it and I was blown away by it. So in that respect, I definitely believe it should be on the list. And when I'm saying it should be knocked off the list, I'm saying if you gave a choice to people, I think that that would be the one that people would feel most comfortable knocking off the list. Well, I'm curious. I want people to tweet at us. I want people yeah. to tweet us, of these three De Niro pairings, which one would you kill? And I wonder, maybe... If people swayed a Raging Bull, because, you know, Raging Bull is so, it, it's so talked about in what it did with cameras and stuff. But I think Taxi Driver is more iconic. And I think Goodfellas is more iconic. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about the breakdown, and I don't have these numbers exactly right, but I think Raging Bull is maybe five and Taxi right. Driver's 52. And I think Goodfellas is in the 80s. Right. But they were, I don't know if people agree with that ranking, even within the top 100. Well, you know what? I can say one thing. It's the most definitive proof I have that the Taxi Driver film should be on this list. Um, It's a little film called, Are You Talking to Me? You talking to me? He worships the movie Taxi Driver. I'm the only one here. Idolizes its star. But as an actor in Hollywood, he just can't cut it. We're only hiring blondes now. Look, I can play a blonde better than any of these clowns here. We're not interested in often Nero, Pacino types anymore. And when his buddy finds sudden stardom, you're fast. Congratulations! <laughs> it's time to find a whole new act. <laughs> but you, blonde, 
I may be blind, Thatch, but you remember where I come from. <laughs> I want you to read for the new spokesman for the Jericho family, Phil Mauer. We are proud to present to you God's Taxi. But fame and fortune has a price. You want millions of people to think that you're a racist, huh? We must protect ourselves. Jim Young stars as a man caught between success and selling his soul. Here is a man who would not take it anymore. A man who stood up against the scum to take the biggest like you. In the home video premiere of You Talking to Me? You make the move. And your customers will be talking to you about renting this hit movie when they see this 24 by 36 inch poster in your store. Paul, what the hell was that? This was one of the favorite things I've ever found in researching the show. What is this movie? Oh my God. It's a movie about a guy who loves Taxi Driver who then becomes... Travis Bickle. What other proof do you need that needs to be on the AFI list if it spawned such great this films as- This perfect synergy of, <laughs> of how did this get made and that's cool. Uh, Paul, I think you have a question for me. Amy, is there a Simpsons about Taxi Driver? Is there a Simpsons about Taxi Driver? You talking to Mo? Are you talking to <laughs> oh, Mo? Oh, perfect character. Great. Are you talking to me? There's no one else here. You must be talking to me. Wow, that was an antique. Crap! <laughs> you know what? Once more, en español. Me estás hablando a mí. No hay nadie más aquí. Entonces me estás hablando a mí. Era una antigüedad. Basura. <laughs> Sorry, I found that. I wanted to play. <laughs> that is amazing. Here we go. I mean, this is a this is a pretty sprawling conversation, and I think for that end alone, I think it's worthy to be on the list to be able to engage us on this level and you came into this movie you know saying that you're not a fan of this movie but you wanted to talk to me about my point of view after this conversation what what are you thinking have i have i managed to at least give you a little bit of a a a greater appreciation well i I have a grudging respect for this film Mm -hmm. i'm the tennessee williams okay you know i i get that it's important i'm not gonna sandbag it and say it shouldn't be important to people. Mm -hmm. I just want to understand why it's so important and I want to question it. Well, Amy, I think we have done it with Taxi Driver. Now it is time to roll the die and see where we're going next. All right, I'm rolling the die. What do we got? It is 24. Ooh, 24 E.T. Classic. Oh, I'm very excited about this. E.T. All right. 24 E.T. All right. I don't even know if I can contain all my thoughts about E.T. <laughs> okay. So E.T. I mean, this is a film that everybody knows. So we can't be like, yo, what do you think E.T. is about? I mean, I think everybody knows. And I think everybody knows that E.T. stands for extraterrestrial. Yes. Right? Uh, so let's play a game. What if it didn't stand for extraterrestrial? What else do you think E.T. could be short for? Ooh, I like this. All right, let's do it. So the number that you're going to call into is 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. What else could E.T. possibly stand for? Hey, 
this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hear that? It's the call of the crave. And when the crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 bacon bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.